for God to open up our hearts and minds to his word. God, we, uh, we do come before you. We come under your word. Lord God, this is your living word. This is your words to us. Um, this is your, this is, this is your um, sharp two-edged sword that pierces through soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And Lord, we, we ask that you would rightly help us divide your word this morning. Help me come under it as I speak. Um, Lord, as you show us through scripture who you are, help us to leave here with a better understanding of God, who you are and why, and, and why you do this crazy thing and want to be with us. So God, thank you. Um, we ask that you to have your way with us and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so let's all stand because we're going to read... Scripture again, Matthew 1, as we read this, Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read right before the passage that Tony read for us. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the departation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And let me just pause there for a second. That just took me about a minute and 50 seconds to read. And you're all probably thinking, wow, we're going to read all these names. We're going to go, maybe you weren't all thinking that. But uh, I just want to, to highlight that that represents 2,000 years of waiting. One minute and 50 seconds, it's hard for us to wait for. We're not a patient people. 2,000 years of waiting for promises, the promised Messiah to come. 2,000 years, and it's been 2,000 years. Let me continue to read. Verse 18, I know we just read it, but we're going to read it again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I'm just going to highlight a few things from this genealogy. Um, just really quick. As I said, it's 2,000 years in the making. From Abraham, the promise to Abraham of an offspring coming to the actual offspring coming, Jesus, 2,000 years. It starts with the son of David, hearkening back to the Davidic covenant, where uh, this is a very important son of David, son of Abraham, how he starts the genealogy is very important to a, to a Jew to, to trace the lineage of, of who the Messiah was. And, he, and they knew there's a Davidic covenant. David was the king, first king, first legitimate king of Israel. And there's a promise to David that there's going to be one, an offspring of his, who's going to sit on the throne forever and ever. Um, and that's pointing to Jesus. And then there's, uh, it says, son of Abraham. So that's pointing back to the Abrahamic covenant. When God called Abraham uh, out of his place, he said, go to the place I'll show you and I'll make your name great, your nation great. Uh, I'll, I'll bless all nations by you and I'll give you a place and all those things. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that offspring that's going to bless many nations. Matthew wants us to know that. Matthew starts his, his, his gospel with a genealogy because Matthew's writing to, to Hebrews, to Jews, and to Israelites. And, and, and that's very, genealogy's huge to them because there's blessing attributed to every tribe. There's 12 tribes, and every tribe was given a blessing by Jacob, and every Jew who comes from that tribe is attributing that blessing to themselves. So they want to know, am I a tribe of Judah? Am I the tribe of Levi, Benjamin, and so on? It's very important. So Matthew, knowing his readers, he starts and, and he wants to v- v- uh, verify and um, validate Jesus' lineage, his birth right to be king. He, he came from the line of Judah through Mary and actually Joseph as a federal head. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. There's a few women included in this genealogy. I don't know if you know. Every time there's a word by in front of a name, that's, that's a woman. So uh, by Tamar or Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, um, even though Bathsheba is not named, but the wife of, um, and then Mary. It's interesting that he'd include these women in there, um, but, math, but they're significant. And, and a lot of these women were women of ill repute. Um, they were, or a couple of them were, and, and God through that shows he can fix brokenness, right? He can, he can enter into brokenness and redeem in spite, of, in spite of our sin. And the Messiah came through broken people, right? Mary was a broken person. She was not actually sinless. She was, she was born with an inherited sin like everyone. Um, but uh, Jesus um, being, uh, yeah, he was, he was born. So Mary, it was actually from the line of Judah. And so Matthew, there's a difference between a Luke, Luke's genealogy, this is just an aside, and Matthew's genealogy, where they have different intentions. Luke actually goes all the way back to Adam, and Matthew goes just to Abraham. Matthew is pointing out the Jewishness of the Messiah. And Luke is pointing out the, the, the fact that he'd save all nations because he's under Adam. And so, so we all are Gentiles and Jews. Um, Mary is the lineage he's tracing in Matthew and Luke traces the lineage of Joseph and the names are different. That's why this not, the Bible is not erring when they're different. It's just, there's different purposes in the genealogies. It's worthy of further study. We don't have time to go into it now, but um, 2000 years of waiting, expecting, hoping, 
all the promises, prophecies of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 to Matthew. The seed, the offspring, the prophet, the king, the priest, the root, the stump, the Messiah. Those are all names for Jesus. And Emmanuel all come to this point, this birth, this humble birth of Jesus, this one event that we look forward to at Christmas time to remind ourselves of what happened. I think of uh, that line from the song. I think it's, yeah, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the promised, all the promises, the 2,000 years of waiting are met in Jesus. So we're going to unpack Matthew 8. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in Matthew 1, actually. But uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm just going to unpack quickly, just kind of go through it. Um, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, um, before they came together, she was found to be a child um, from the Holy Spirit. So betrothed back then was a legal, uh, a legal, legal um, relationship. It wasn't just like our engagements now, um, but it was a legal binding contract that I will marry you. And to, to, to break it, you'd have to get a divorce, just like you would if you were married. You'd have, and that's why the next verse it says, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He was a good man because the law, um, if, if she wasn't indeed betrothed and she was unfaithful to her husband or her future husband, uh, the law would dictate that she would be exposed for her sin and put to death. Much like the woman who committed adultery um, that Jesus uh, kind of inter- intervened with. Um, but Joseph wanted to divorce her quietly. He's a good man. He, he still obviously loves her and he wants to protect her from that punishment. So he wants to divorce her quietly because, you know, um, he obviously thinks she's been unfaithful because no one has ever seen a pregnant woman who's never been with a man. Pretty uncommon, right? Um, so it's pretty crazy until an angel comes and he says, no, wait, hold on. Uh, this, this baby is, is of the Holy Spirit, and he is this one, and he, uh, let me just read it. Um, it's better than me paraphrasing. As you consider these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, again, calling on his lineage, calling on who he was, a king, kingly line, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And I was thinking, like, today, you know, um, we did and, you know, Lori and I waited to know what the gender of our children were. You know, we like to be surprised. And everyone says, yeah, you get surprised either way, right? Yeah, I don't believe it. Um, so you get surprised. I don't buy that. No, so we were surprised on that day. It was cool. Um, no, nothing against if you want to get ahead. But like, here, here's, the, here's the gender reveal party right here. Uh, 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 Gabriel tells him, you're going to have a son. It's a son. And you shall be, call his name Jesus by blue stuff because he is going to be a son for he will save his people from their sins. Um, the word Jesus or in Hebrew would be Yeshua, um, would, it means Yahweh saves. That's why, it, that's why it translates that for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That was from Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah and attributing this prophecy to Jesus. So here's a question. What was his name? Was it Jesus or was it Emmanuel? His name, what people would have called him was, in fact, Jesus or Yeshua, son of Joseph, probably Yeshua ben Joseph, or Yosef is actually how you say it, of Nazareth, of Jesus. They didn't have last names back then. They just referred to their dad or, or where they came from or their occupation. But names had meaning. 
just like they do now. Yeshua is a common name back then. It's similar to Joshua. It's a derivative of Joshua or Josiah. It means God saves. Zechariah, my other son, means Yahweh remembers and so on. But the text also says Jesus' birth is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 7 hundreds of years earlier, that his name would be Emmanuel. What does that mean? In Hebrew, name is hugely significant. It means essence. It means who you are. It means what you came to do. It means your role. It's your title. It's like who, what you're about. It's not just identifying you from other people. And so when it says your name is Emmanuel, it's talking about his role. It's what he came to be, God with us. I doubt it's, it's highly unlikely people called him Emmanuel, like Emmanuel Sanders, you know, his name after that. I don't know. It, it, it wasn't his first name. Um, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14. It says, um, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God sent the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz, one of those names I read earlier in the line of Jesus. And one of those guys, uh, yeah, one of those guys, and, and he was prophesying that Assyria was about to come and take over. And God says, through, through Isaiah to Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ahaz, why don't you ask me for a sign? A sign that I w- I'm at work. God is at work. A sign that God is behind him. But Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. So God says, all right, fine, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign anyway. A sign uh, that a virgin will bear a son and his name will be God with us. And there might be, I actually believe that there's an immediate fulfillment in Isaiah's day for this, but everyone agrees, there's debate on that, but everyone agrees that this prophecy, as Matthew lays it out, is pointing towards Jesus, this miraculous birth. Miraculous birth. For 2,000 years, Israelites, Jews, were waiting for their Messiah. They knew all the prophecies. They knew he would come and usher in his kingdom. They knew he was going to open up a can and throw down on his oppressors. He, he would free captives. He'd heal the sick, the lame. He'd make the blind see. Every woman from the line of David would wonder, you know, they're from the line of Judah, and there's this promise, like, the Messiah is going to come. And so maybe they'd wonder, like, is it going to be, is the offspring going to come through me? Or who's it going to, is it going to come from someone I know? And, and here's Mary, like Gabriel says, in, in, in Luke, I believe, uh, yeah, it's you. He's going to come through you. And everyone knew, they, they knew what was going on at that moment. They were giving birth to the Messiah. I mean, he was coming through them. Crazy, crazy thought. And they were waiting, their whole, the whole, whole nation was waiting for this moment, right? And it came upon them. Although no one, no one knew at the time, it was the first advent of Jesus. They didn't know he was going to come a second time like we do now. Um, Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going we're gonna to hang on that, that, that definition, or we're going to hang on that, word, that name for the rest of our time. Emmanuel, God with us. Very important words with. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us, he tells us, right? But what does that mean, right? With, it's, I, I believe it's one of the most important words in all of scripture, with. And I, and I, wanted, I wanted to give it a shot to um, define it. Um, it's going to take a little bit of time. With in Hebrew Old Testament is im for Emmanuel, Emmanuel. And in Greek, it's the word meta, like meta narrative, like the, the narrative around the narrative. It's with the narrative, meta. Emmanuel. El is the word for God. New is us. Emmanuel. The, the word with is this massive concept. So there are two primary facets in scripture that we see when God is with people. 
So if you're taking notes, this would be a good, I'll try not, I'll try not to go too fast. I'm going to say this a few times. Two characteristics of withness. I made up that word, withness. God's withness with us. Um, number one, there's a guiding kind of with. And number two, there's an abiding kind of with. Guiding and abiding. One is a functional withness and one is a relational withness. Bear with me with that made up word because I think it works for this. Emmanuel encompasses both of these. To explain further, this, this guiding facet of being with people in the Bible is primarily a functional withness. Like when we say, I'm with you, I got your back, I, I, I got you, I got you, man, I got, I got you covered. So God in the Bible functionally guides and enables people in their calling by being with them in it by being for them, by being with them along the journey. That's what one of those aspects is. The abiding facet of God being with people in the Bible, however, is primarily relational withness. We see this in the Bible, God dwelling with people, God making his home with people. It's nearness, it's drawing near to them, it's relationship. So there's this, so the two characteristics or facets of Emmanuel in the Bible are guiding God guides people functionally. And number two, abiding. God abides with people relationally. That's not all. There's more with what with means and what Emmanuel means. There are two ways in which God guides and which God abides with us. There's two ways God does that. He does it physically and he does it spiritually. God physically abides with and guides his people in the Bible, and God spiritually abides with and guides his people. So at the risk of being redundant, God with us in the Bible means God guiding people. It means God abiding with people, and it, and, and it means him doing it both physically and spiritually. But wait, that's not all. That's not all. There's, there's more. Emmanuel is also directional. Directional. It is God with us, not us with God. The order is actually important. The order is important. This is huge. What we see through all scripture is the direction, the primary movement, the initiating movement of this withness from God is from God to us, not from us to God. God with us, moving toward us. Any movement of us toward him is in response to him first moving towards us. It's very important. The withness starts with him, not with us. So at the risk of being furtherly, further redundant, that's not a word, furtherly, further redundant, Emmanuel means this, God guides his people, he abides with his people, he does so physically and spiritually, and the primary energy and movement in making that happen is from him to us, not us to him. And at the risk of being even further redundant, it's relational, functional, Spiritual, physical, and directional. Okay, now I'm done. So what are we waiting for as saints, as followers of Jesus in the year 2017? What hopes and longings might you have? Um, what are you, how are you getting through these days of waiting for our, for our Savior to come? And, and I, I reflect upon this, I reflect upon this a lot this week. And, uh, and maybe as Jason said, I don't know that I'm just waiting for him. I like waiting for the stuff he gives. I like the idea of him removing things in my life that I don't like. I like the idea of circumstances getting better. I'm not a very content person by nature. 
Um, am I waiting for him? Am I waiting for Emmanuel? So here's the biblical theology of Emmanuel. Now that we have a working definition of Emmanuel, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at and reminding ourselves of and reveling in the good news of the gospel. From cover to cover of scripture, a biblical theology of the good news of the gospel. It's not just justification. We're not going to look at just that. It's not just sanctification or redemption or atonement or adoption, the cross, the life, death, or resurrection of Jesus, but rather the good news to which all of that points. The good news to which Advent and all of Scripture is pointing. Here it is. Wait for it. It's God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. The good news of the good news. Biblical theology just means you're going to study the story. And so we're, from cover to cover, there's arcs and threads that go throughout Scripture. So we're just going to look at this arc, this thread of Emmanuel. We're going to do it quickly. We're going to jump through Scripture, and I'm going to highlight just certain things. We're going to just run through it, and then multimedia people have their work cut out for them to follow me with these verses, and, and, uh, but they'll be up on the screen. But Emmanuel, it's God's plan. It's God's story. It's his story. It's the great so that of the gospel. I call it the so that of the gospel. Um, we are justified so that we might be with him. We are redeemed so that we might be with him. Jesus did all he did so that we might be with him. Emmanuel. God has done all he has done so that he might be with us. God wants to be with us. It's everywhere in scripture, implicit and explicit. So here we go. Are you ready? The first time we see Emmanuel's in Genesis, in the garden, God with us. It's not called out. It's not said that, but he is with us. Nonetheless, he's with his people in the garden. You can turn to pages one, two, and three of your Bible if you want. I'll be there for a little while. Genesis 1.31, we all know this verse. It says, and God saw everything that he had made is after the sixth day. He made everything. He'd made man. He made everything. And it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. And then the next day, um, he rests, right? And chapter two of Genesis just kind of zeroes in in a personal way what he just talked about in, uh, in, in, in the day six, where he made man. It was kind of an impersonal uh, descri- description. And now it's poetry. Now it's like, now he's in there personally. And I just want to highlight a few verses in Genesis two and three that speak of him being with Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, seven, the Lord Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is a personal, this is a personal picture of how God created. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, I've said it before, like a clash of the titans, God throwing, lobbing material into the universe and creating man off in a distance. It was God, um, as Timothy Keller says, getting his hands dirty. The word formed actually means sculpted. And I believe it's actually saying God physically with his hands sculpted Adam out of the clay, out of the dust. I believe that literally. That's what the word actually means there. God was there in the garden getting his hands dirty to form man. Verses 21 through 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and catch this word, brought her. 
to the man, not sent her to the man. So picture a wedding, and when the father, when the father takes his takes his daughter to give her to the man, I think of a. Uh, um, John, John Cuppager, um, with his daughter Naomi. I remember going to that wedding a couple of years ago or whatever it was. And he, he gave, but it, he gave his daughter to this man. That's what Jesus, that's what God did. He brought Eve to Adam, took her. That's what the word literally means, take her to her, to him. It was the first marriage. Number three, eight, another place. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we'll go on, we'll stop right there. Um, they heard sound waves, physical sound waves entering their physical ears from physical feet walking on physical ground. God was there. God was walking with them. Pause for a second. It's very important for us to understand right here that God didn't create man out of need, but out of desire. God didn't need people to be with. He wanted people to be with. He didn't need any more witness than he already had with the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had existed in eternity past in a perfect relationship. He didn't need more witness. He wanted it. He didn't create out of loneliness or uh, boredom. He just wanted people to be with. That's why he created. That's why he created us. It wasn't an exercise in boredom. And it's these new people he got to be with. The Bible calls this abiding or dwelling. He dwelt with them. He abided with them. He wants to dwell and abide with people, as we'll see as we go on. So already in Genesis 1 through 3, we see an Emmanuel, God with us, relational, functional, guiding, abiding, physical, and spiritual. It's very important that we know it's physical, because now we don't know that. Like if you are in Christ, we don't know a physical witness like they knew. But one day we will. Genesis 8, uh, 3, 8 through 13, I'm going to continue to read. Uh, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, um, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And when the Lord God said to the, then the Lord God, sorry, said to the woman, what is this you have done? What is this you have done? So you see Adam and Eve for the first time hiding from what? the presence of the Lord, the witness of the Lord. And now we see this directional aspect. God is coming to them, but for the first time ever, they're not coming back to God. They're, they're leaving. They're, they're going the other way. They're running for the first time ever. That's, and, and, from, and that's how it's been ever since. God pursues and we run. God pursues, man runs. That's the direction of movement. Verse 13, what is this you have done? How, did God, how do you think God said that? How do you imagine that sounded? Was it in anger? I used to think, I grew up in the church, I used to hear this, what is this you have done? Like that. Um, like this Charlton Heston, big, massive voice like a, of anger and wrath. But if God really, if he truly wanted to be with these people and he's pursuing them and they're running away, wouldn't you think it'd be grieving? Like, wouldn't you think that it sounded like, 
pleading, like, what is this you've done? I don't get to be with you anymore, and you don't get to be with me. This is what you've done. And it, it grieved him. It grieved him. I'm sure it did. If God made man to want to be with them, he's losing what he desires most in them. It's that it's them being with him. So you know the story. God ultimately gives Adam and Eve what they want. He lets them run. They have to leave the garden. The whole earth is cursed. Relationships are broken. It's a very big deal that they can no longer be in the physical presence of God. They can no longer abide with him physically, not primarily because he doesn't want them to, but because primarily he doesn't want them to burn up in his presence. It's another thing I think I grew up with thinking that, um, you know, the separation because God is holy and we're not is more a protection of him and his holiness than it's a protection of us. Um, and I, and I, I believe, I truly believe he, in protection of them because he loves them, he, he has to remove himself from them so they don't burn up in his presence. God is holy and perfect. Adam and Eve and all mankind's sense are unholy and pure. And all throughout the Bible, we see what happens if an unholy thing uh, comes close to, physically close to and near God, it burns up. It gets annihilated in the presence of a holy God. God never changes his desire to be with man, to dwell with him. The reason God doesn't just start over with the fall after the fall of Adam and Eve is because he wants Adam and Eve. He doesn't want another set. He wants them. And so he, he, he wants to fix that. He doesn't want to start over. It'd be like me saying, you know, when my kids wander off or do something against me, I'd like, yeah, I just want to get rid of them and start over. Like what parent, what parent would do that? This is a father who loves his kids. He's not going to start over. He wants them. He wants them. So here's the big problem. God still wants to be Emmanuel, dwelling with his people, but the people he loves will die if he gets near them. For God to get what he wants to be with his people fully, physically, and everything, he has to either hold himself back somehow, or he has to change the people so that they won't be annihilated in his presence. That's the only those are the only two things he can do to get near people. And so what does he do? He does that very thing. He does those things. You know the rest of the story. Um, Genesis 3.15, he introduces a plan to do just that. He, he talks about, it's the first promise of the Messiah. An offspring of Adam and Eve would come one day and he'd crush the serpent's head, the, the tempter, Satan, Satan's head, uh, uh, and, and, and defeat evil and make everything right. It's the first promise of the Messiah. And, and so you know the rest, right? Mankind continues a downward spiral running from God and God continues to move towards men. All of scripture points this out. First, he calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and promises to be with him, to bless him, to give him a place that the offspring promised to Adam and Eve would be from his line. And from Abraham, we have Israel's God's chosen people to dwell with. And God decides to meet with man in a, in a limited way through them, a limited way. Fast forward to Moses. Moses is the first way God meets with the Israelites and is with them. God talks to Moses and Moses mediates for the people. Read Exodus, and we're hopefully we might be going through Exodus next year as a, as a church um, on Sunday mornings. It would be great. He is the go-between. He represents God to the Israelites and Israelites to God. It's a limited way for God to meet with His people, and God gives them the law in the book of Exodus. He His instructions of how to live in this new kingdom. God promises to be their God if they will be his people. So he's established this new covenant relationship where he promises and they promise and they break their promise and he doesn't. Exodus 25, 8, you know, he still wants to be with them. So, so he has them build a tent called a tabernacle to meet 
to meet them in. And it's a place where God can be with man. In a limited way, Exodus 25.8 says this, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. That I may dwell, that word actually literally means be with, dwell, inhabit uh, the same space. And so this tabernacle is a way, way, place for God's space and our space to combine, to come together. Um, but it's a limited, very limited way to be with his people. It was only in this one spot in the middle of the tabernacle. You, you probably, m- many of you know this, it's called the Holy of Holies. And it's this 30 by 30 by 30 foot box separated from the rest of the tabernacle with this five inch thick, beautiful purple and red linen uh, 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 curtain um, that weighs a ton. And, and, it's, and, it's, uh, and it's 30 feet high and 30 feet wide. And it's a separation of the barrier between the presence of God and the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle and the rest of the world, really. It's, this is limited way. And, and only one person, the high priest, can go in there one day in a 30 by 30 by 30 box. And that's how God is meeting with people. That's how Emmanuel is played out for thousands of years in Scripture. This limited one day a year thing. And it works and it points to something big, bigger, because it's not enough for God. God didn't leave that as the system, the way. He's making a better way. God wanted more. He needed a bigger place to meet with his people, right? One day, one guy wasn't good uh, to leave it there. So this is how he, for thousands of years, we see this. God would dwell with his people in this limited way, with limited people in the Old Testament. The Israelites as a whole still ran from God, right? Regardless of this movement toward them, he kept his covenant. They broke theirs. God would call judges and prophets and kings to lead his people, promising people like Joshua and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Ezekiel, others, I will be with you. I'll go with you. And this is the guiding kind of with. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, be strong. He's talking to Joshua, Moses is, as he's going into the promised land. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. This is the guiding kind of with. And then Isaiah 41, 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's a guiding and an abiding kind of with he's talking about there. But it all pointed to something better. Enter Jesus, the first advent, which is why we're here today celebrating, celebrating Jesus and remembering him. Jesus was truly God with them. He was with them, walking with them in the flesh, physical presence. John 1 says the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. He walked with people for 30 plus years, calling disciples to be even closer to him. He was truly with these guys. God was made low. And again, God veiled in flesh. Jesus was fully God, but still, it still wasn't, we still don't see the Godhead, God in all his fullness still isn't with his people, even when Jesus is on earth. I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't fully God because he was fully God and fully man. It's very important, but he was one person of the Trinity in a physical way on earth. um, And and he wasn't the fullness of God in the Godhead yet. That was yet to come. Jesus is pointing actually to that in the future. Jesus showed how he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He was their high priest. He was the new temple. He was the place to be with God. He was, he's the, he was the space where God and people can meet. Jesus said, I, uh, he, he said, you know, uh, destroy this temple. And he's talking about the temple of his body and, and I'll raise it again in three days. He was talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. He was the place to meet with God now. He was the one who was going to change this people from the inside out and give them a new heart to make them holy so they wouldn't burn up in God's presence. 
Jesus was perhaps the most, in the most intimate time in his ministry, in the upper room the night before he, he was crucified. In John, I love this passage. Um, it really speaks, Jesus speaks of what this is going to look like. And we're going to camp out there for a little bit, um, but the verses will be up on the screen. So you can turn there if you want, 14 through 17, John's 14 through 17, or you can look up the screen. I'm just going to highlight a few of these verses. John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. He's talking about going away and coming back, right? And I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, to be with him. He's not taking him somewhere else. He's taking him to him. That's what he's promising there. 14, 6, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, Thomas, he was asking questions. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to, to what? To the Father, except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. So Jesus is saying, one day you'll be with my Father. You can go through me to my Father. 16 through 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, to be with you forever. This is talking about the Holy Spirit, right? Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells, there's that word again, with you and will be in you. This is where we are right now, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you follow Jesus, you right now can experience God with you in this way. The spirit is abiding in you if you are a believer of Jesus. And he um, guides you. He helps you. He counsels you. He opens up your mind to the God's word. Um, God is very much and 100% with us by his spirit, but he's not 100% with us overall. It's, it's a pointing to. It's, we're waiting for another day. We're waiting for something. He, he gives us everything we need right now for life and godliness in this life. But one day, there's going to be a more, a bigger fullness of God with us. 1423. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, get this, so we already have the spirit, right? And now he says, we, the father and Jesus will come to him and make our home with him. The movement is from God to us. He's going to make his home with us. This is a promise we can all cling to. He's going to make the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're going to make their home with us, their, their, their place of dwelling. Massive. And then, and then flip forward a couple chapters to chapter 17, 3, and Jesus is explaining what this eternal life is that, that you get to be, to have in me. This is eternal life. He defines what it is, 17, 3, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's a relational, eternal life is relational first and situational and circumstantial second. It's about knowing God not getting his stuff. John 17, 24, Father, I desire, this is, this is what God desires. Jesus, the son desires this. Father, I desire that also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is hoping and longing for the day when we, his followers, get to see him in all his glory. That means be with him forever. Then when Jesus gets crucified and dies, He's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that means? The God of the universe, Jesus, who was dwelling in eternity past in perfect relationship with the Trinity for the very first time is without. On the cross, 
All his friends have forsaken him. They are not with him. And God has forsaken him on that cross because a holy God cannot look at sin and all the sin of the world Jesus is bearing in that moment. And he says, God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, Jesus is without God, the Father, in a relational kind of way. So that you and I can experience God with us one day. He goes without so that we can be with. He takes our place. Because we deserve that. We deserve being without God. He takes our place. Through Jesus, God in the flesh, there is now access to God. He has opened the way for God to be with us. Hebrews, I'm going to whip through these. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. Remember that Holy of Holies. And Jesus, Jesus when he's on the cross, it says in Matthew 27 that, that uh, the, the curtain, that five-inch curtain that was separating God's presence from the rest of the world was torn top to bottom again. And the movement is from God to us. The movement, the energy goes from God to us, down to us. Um, and, and that's what that signifies. The curtain is torn, no longer a barrier, a separation between God and us Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that, that same place, that, that box where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not heaven, not stuff, Him. This is the gospel. All of what God has done throughout Scripture and through Jesus has been to bring us to himself. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, that the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I want to read this quote from uh, John Piper. This is a great book. Uh, it's called The Passion of Jesus Christ. It's like a devotional, There's 50, or, or it's also called 50 Ways or 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. Um, and this is number 22. I love it. And just listen to this. It's talking about the gospel when all is said and done, God is the gospel. But what is the ultimate good in the good news? If it, 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 it all ends in one thing, God himself. All the words of the gospel lead to him or they're not the gospel. For example, salvation is not good news if it only saves from hell and not for God. Forgiveness is not good news if it only gives relief from guilt and doesn't open the way to God. Justification is not good news if it only makes us legally acceptable to God, but doesn't bring fellowship with God. Redemption is not good news if it only liberates us from bondage, but doesn't bring us to God. Adoption is not good news if it only puts us in the Father's family, but not in his arms. Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. Here's, here's, I love this. I'll, I'll finish here with this quote. The gospel of Christ is the good news that at the cost of his son's life, God has done everything necessary to enthrall us with him, with what will make us eternally and ever increasingly happy, namely himself. The gospel of Christ is the good news that at the cost of his son's life, God has done everything necessary to enthrall us with what will make us eternally and ever increasingly happy, namely himself. The last scripture, and we're all done, and we'll sing. Revelation 21. Here's where it all is heading. John, looking forward to the last day, 
says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The sea means separation. That, that means there's a, there was a separation. The sea, the separation between heaven and earth was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Did you hear that? Heaven is coming to us. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are not going to heaven. Heaven is coming to you. God is going to be with us. He's going to make his dwelling place with us. The movement is from him to us, not the other way around. He's going to remake this earth so he can dwell on it with us. It's very, very key. I never, never grasped that until a few years ago. I always thought I was going to go to this floaty place somewhere, and it wasn't going to come to me. God's not going to come to me. I got to go to him somewhere. That's what we say. We're going to go to heaven. It's not in the Bible everywhere, anywhere. Like I challenge you to look for that phrase, go to heaven in scripture. It's not there. Um, it's coming to us. God is coming to us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. Emmanuel as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And again, I picture him him wiping tears, not a magical wand, but him. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is all of God um, coming to us. This is all of God, uh, uh, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit dwelling with us physically, spiritually in a complete full way. That's the picture here. This is God not held back at all. There's no separation. Everything is the holy of holies. Um, it also talks about uh, this is just a bonus, new heaven and new earth in a perfect cube, which uh, really signifies this massive, uh, it's like a 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile holy of holies where everything dwells because everything is in God's presence. It's like a picture of the temple, but now it's everywhere. It's God's presence with us everywhere. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away our tears. There'll be no more mourning and crying or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. This is spiritual Physical, functional, relational, and the direction of relationship now finally will be both ways. We'll, we'll, we'll respond and worship and he'll, he'll come to us and we'll go to him. It'll be this relationship. It'll be perfect. It'll be awesome. God will finally get what he wants, us and all of us. And, and we will finally get what we want ultimately, which is him. What will delight us most is just him. So here's the question. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the presence of God? Or are you waiting for the presence of God? Because I spent a lot of my time, my life, waiting for the presence, E-N-T-S. What he can give me, the circumstances he can give me, the circumstances he can get me out of. And I haven't spent enough of my life longing for his presence, being with him. Let me, let me let's spend some time praying and, and I'll call the worship team up. Let's just take a couple moments and just uh, respond as you want to in your hearts to these truths um, and worship to God, a God who wants you, God who wants to be with you, God who longs for you, God who made you, who knows you best and he loves you the most, he wants you. Um, and that's where we're all headed for. If you, if you are a follower of his, we get to be with him. So this, just ponder that for a second. 
Let's stand and uh, close our service and respond with this worship song talking about Emmanuel.